This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1, Episode 6 of Wild Olive. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Listeners, great news. Wild Olive has been asked to join the Choircast podcast network. And part of what that means is we're also going to be letting you hear a little bit about them. So we'll have some plugs for our podcast network buddies that you'll be hearing at the beginning of our podcasts from now on. And before long, we'll even have ads placed midstream. Wild Olive is a nonprofit, but we do have expenses. We pay for editing, graphic design, website design, web hosting, recording equipment, podcast distribution, social media help, and other things. So including ads means that we could cover these expenses without dipping into our own pockets, which is what we've been doing to bring this content to you. One day, we'll also have a way for you to support Wild Olive with donations, but we're not quite there yet. In the months to come, don't be too surprised when you hear an ad pop into our conversation. Just think of it as the way we keep bringing you game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. Today, we're talking about sexuality in the Bible while we explore a poem by the contemporary poet Vivi Francis. So, if you remember... At the end of the last episode, we were starting to talk about Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. We thought we might continue that conversation here, but then we discovered a gorgeous poem by Vivi Francis that, like Their Eyes Were Watching God, uses Genesis imagery to explore sexuality, knowing, desire, God, and all that good stuff. Vivi Francis is the author of Blue Tail Fly, Horse in the Dark, and Forest Primeval. She's won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Poetry. She's an associate professor at Dartmouth College and is also an associate editor for Callaloo. She's an incredible poet and a really generous teacher. I met her recently when she came to my college. The poem we're hearing today appears in the 1619 Project Anthology, which was edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones. The purpose of that anthology, for anyone who might not know, is to highlight the central role of Black people in the development of the United States. Instead of starting the origin story of the United States in 1776, 
Hannah Jones suggests we tell a new origin story that starts in 1619, the year African-descended people first came to North America. There are many origin stories we could tell about the United States. From an indigenous person's point of view, the story of the United States starts long before 1619, when Native nations began creating the trade routes and developing the agricultural know-how that settlers came to use much later. And speaking of origin stories, the poem we're about to read makes use of a Genesis origin story. Listen for the Genesis references and see what you make of them. Jennifer, would you like to read? I sure would. Loving Me It was simple, so immediate we didn't note a change. The birds flew in that moment as they did anywhere else, lifting their wings over the waters, and the sun that had risen in the morning would fall to its knees in the evening like any other living thing. I am not of a mind to prove what is plain as God's speech through the white pines. The trees that day, amassed in their strange configurations, gave rest to the snake and crying insect alike. We couldn't have been expected to know. Weren't we taught to fear knowledge? But the ruddy apple of your face made me reach out, and I know the power of my own gaze. Why else would those who seek to own me want me to cast my eyes down? Thank you for that, Jennifer. Let me start by highlighting the creation imagery that Francis uses in this poem. We've got wings fluttering over the waters, the sun rising and setting. The poem makes reference to God's speech, which is what brings the world into being in the first Genesis creation story. We've got trees, snake, and a fruit. Last time we talked about how The Genesis story doesn't actually say that the woman gave the man an apple, just a fruit. But centuries of art history have created an association between that forbidden fruit and an apple. The apple has also come over the centuries to be associated with knowledge and knowing. What occurs to you as you listen to this poem, Jennifer? I think I'm most drawn to those final lines of the poem. We couldn't have been expected to know. Weren't we taught to fear knowledge? I hear a mixing of ideas from those opening biblical stories. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the idea that sex is involved in the garden story somehow. And I do hear, you know, the central resonances, that kind of a thing in in chapter three. But I also know that many people have been taught to fear knowledge as a way of not thinking too deeply about your faith because it needs to be faith and trusting in God and what you see in the scriptures and God's communicating to us. And you don't want to learn too much because that might lead you away from your faith in God, something like that. I was even told and warned not to go to seminary because I might think my way out of my faith. So I think I hear that when I read that line of hers, weren't we taught to fear knowledge? Even though I also hear this kind of taboo on sex in that line as well. We couldn't have been expected to know what what would open up for us. Weren't we taught to stay away from this? Yeah, those are the the things that jump out to me um, in her words as I think about how she's playing with these Genesis ideas. When I listen to you, I'm also reminded that there's a pretty long history of 
Christians being afraid of science, too. Um, going all the way yeah. back to Galileo, right? Ah, Indeed. No new knowledge. If we have new knowledge, it's potentially going to damage our relationship to God or damage our relationship to Scripture. And as you know, I am always interested in a way of reading Scripture and a way of practicing or encountering Christianity where we can be intellectually vital, fully curious, completely rigorous and vigorous in our questioning, and quite confident that nothing terrible is going to happen either with my relationship to Scripture or with my relationship to God. That That's me. But you're right. I mean, the story about the first humans, it, it certainly does explore the idea that knowledge is something to be feared. Would you like to say a little bit more, Jennifer, about conventional Christian interpretations of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the woman's decision to eat the fruit? Despite those prohibitions, we've had some interesting conversations about that. What's floating to the surface for you today? <laughs> and that is the question, right? <laughs> what is floating today? <laughs> I think one of the things I'm my response, you know, to your prompt is more along is along the lines of the way so many people, not everyone, Many Christian, most many Christians, I don't know, maybe even some Jews. I'm not entirely sure about that. Are taught to read the story in ten, in Genesis two and three through the eyes or the lens of God was testing the humans and they failed. Right? They, they. He said not to do this one thing and they did it. <laughs> Dag blast him! <laughs> and this is what happens because they were selfish or disobedient or however you want to put that. And so you have a spin on the story that, to be honest, is being led by what Paul says many centuries later about this story. And it's a powerful reading of it. He reads it in a way that a person can follow where he gets that. Um, and a lot of people have agreed with it. And it has led many people to think about this story through the lens of original sin and judgment on humans and a lot of what I think of in general, when I step back from it, a lot of really negative and heavy baggage, to be honest. And then I look back at her words and I think, look at what she says. The ruddy apple of your face made me reach out. She is just, I mean, she's just owning it. And it's a beautiful thing, right? And I don't care that it's an apple in her poem, that I, that because that works well with the the you know, the facial features, right? The apple of the cheek or however you want to look at that. And I just picture her, you know, reaching out to to caress or cup the, the cheek or the, the side of the face of her lover, whoever it is, you know. We couldn't have known and I was drawn in and I, you were so beautiful and I know the power of my own gaze. I, I really like this line and how she's playing with what you see some people talking about today in terms of this idea of a gaze for whose gaze is a poem written or for whose gaze is um, a picture created or a movie told from whose perspective do we see the events unfolding. And I like that she's kind of playing with it and owning the power of her own gaze as she looks at her lover. And then there's just this really powerful thing she's doing here, right? Um, her own gaze is a positive thing. She knows it's powerful. And those who 
as she says, would seek to own me. I mean, she's very clearly tapping into that realm of the enslavement of peoples. Those who, those who seek to own me would tell me to cast my eyes down. She knows it's powerful. She knows that it is a challenge to someone who would want to or need to put a lid on her and her desire or her choices, maybe. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I certainly agree with that. And I also really love that line about the gaze. I know the power of my own gaze. I love how that flips gaze theory on its head. And listeners, in case you've never run into film reviews or scholarship about the male gaze, let me just summarize the concept for you. Laura Mulvey writes about the male gaze in a famous 1973 article called Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema, really seminal work of film scholarship. And she talks in that article about how classical Hollywood cinema portrays men as the people in American culture who do the looking, and women as the people in American culture who are the looked at, who looks at whom, according to Mulvey, establishes a power relationship. If men are the bearers of the gaze, that's Mulvey's language, and women are the receivers of the male gaze, it sets up a power differential in which men are active and women are passive, men act and women are acted upon, This idea of the male gaze became a really famous critical concept, and people in all kinds of fields started to use it. It acquired lots of uses outside of uses in analyses of Hollywood cinema. And the speaker of the poem feels like a woman to me, so when she refers to the power of her own gaze, she disrupts the typical gender and power dynamics described by Mulvey's gaze theory. The poem's speaker knows her own power, and (laughs) I have to say... I want to read that back into the creation story about the woman and the fruit, because for me, that garden story is also about gender and power, whether the original storytellers intended it to be about gender and power or not. Stories take on a life of their own once they're told, and I'm excited about that. That's one reason I love to read contemporary works of literature that contain biblical allusions, because they give us new takes on on old stories. Yes. And what you've just said, right, the, that there is a gender element going on here. And I have to say what I have heard quite a bit in, in my past um, was all these different ways of saying, well, the serpent had to go after the woman because she's the weaker one and all these negative projections onto the woman as the one who could be tricked, or however you want to look at that. Whereas I think there's another way of looking at all that. And I, you've probably heard those too. But there, what about the fact that you need to, t- you know, it's only the stronger one who's going to lead the the second. I mean, there are all kinds of counters to that. But I, I just love the the idea of she saw this was beautiful, whether it's the person or the knowledge of good and evil. And it was desired to make one wise, again, whether it's this relationship or the not. And she reached, she went for it. She was courageous. She did it, right? She had the courage, the curiosity, the desire, the internal knowing, if we want to look at this through the the lens of this relationship, right, that this is good and natural and one could suggest healthy and normal and all of those things and how beautiful is that, right? Yeah, I I definitely vibe with that. 
Hi, listeners. This is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers for Wild Olive, with some questions for the day. First, where have you heard the Bible being used in a way that tries to answer modern questions about sexuality? What do you think about the practice of using an ancient text to answer contemporary questions? I'm thinking about what you said earlier that in so much conventional religious interpretation, there's such a heavy emphasis on obedience. And I hear that in many quarters. Another conventional conservative religious interpretation that we haven't named yet, I remember driving along, listening to Moody Bible Radio, and I remember... <laughs> I believe in exposing myself to all kinds of media. It's how I good. it's how I That's keep good. flexible. So I remember this pastor talking about this story and speaking directly to men and saying, Men, in your households, you have to take initiative because if you don't take initiative, look what happens. Look what happens when the woman takes initiative. So it's, um, it was, a, again, a very negative reading. And I'm reminded of your friend Angela Parker talks about how those emphases on obedience and the emphasis on an inerrancy of Scripture and reading it very literally, that those kinds of readings really reinforce patriarchal power structures and also really reinforce white supremacist power structures. Yes. Yes. So when we start to get away from those and put on like different kinds of reading lenses, maybe the lenses that Vivi Francis is giving us in this poem, when we start to open up interpretation, presumably we also start to move out from under those power structures that need for the text to be read in a certain way in order to reinforce Mm -hmm. a certain system of power. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's one reason why I think it's so great that contemporary authors are helping us rethink some of these Bible stories. Um, Listen, can you say a bit more about... Um, Well, I'm thinking back to permission granted, and you make a comment um, on page 46, if we're going to be precise. (laughs) And I'd love for you to elaborate on, because there is this conventional association, there's a conventional association in many Christian circles between sex and sinfulness. And sexuality is something that's often approached with a lot of fear Mm. in Christian communities. You make a comment in Permission Granted, you are talking about that prominent view among some Bible readers that sex is somehow impure. And and you go on to say, and I'm quoting you now, there is no passage in the Bible where God says that sex is dirty or nasty. There are no passages that claim that sex itself is impure. In fact, given the affirmation of sex in Genesis 1 and 2, one could argue that God is cool with sex. And that's the end of the quote. It's really fun. And so would you say a little bit more about that? Um, I would love to hear more about that because it seems very much related to the view of sexuality in Their Eyes Were Watching God and in Vivi mm-hmm. Francis's poems. So maybe you could talk to us about that. Sure, sure. You know, I think 
What's interesting to me is the way so many people have been taught to even read onto Genesis 1 and 2 that the only way that sex is okay, even here at the very, very beginning, is because we believe that these two humans were married. And that goes hand in hand with all these other conversations that that tend to go on that say that sex outside of marriage is wrong and God is going to punish that, which also comes perhaps from misreading. But, um, you know, it's it's it was actually surprising to me as I wrote, worked on some worked on a book about marriage in the Bible, that when I looked at Genesis one twenty eight or 26 to 28, where God God says, let us create humans in our image and God and whatever helpers, right, they create humans, male and female. And it talks about being fruitful, just like God talks to the animals and all the things on the planet that besides humans, you know, it tells them to be fruitful. And I realized that I had been thinking through this lens of well, of course they're married because God is telling them to have sex. And so I I hope I'm making sense here that so many people are taught to think about this this kind of normal it's it's normal for everyone who isn't asexual, okay? You know, desire or human interaction that is fulfilling and all kinds of things. That we've been taught to read these things through certain lenses and so sex is okay when it's in this category, but not in this one. And, you know, and somehow without being aware of all the nuances of how it works, sex is involved in Genesis 3, and that's what passes on original sin. So that's, so there's something negative, but we can't really fully tease it out. <laughs> and so it becomes very confusing uh-huh. for a lot of teenagers and maybe even young adults when you're brought up to think with these lenses. And I just think... On the flip side of that, I love that one of what a rabbi helped me to see, which is that, and this is getting away from the sex piece of it, but he said, you know, I I look at Genesis 2 and 3 as a positive story that shows one thing that separates humans from other animals. And for me, that becomes a way to see this whole story as empowering. Sure, we've got some negative, we've got some issues to deal with. Like there's some things the story wants to talk about. But when I take on that lens, it it helps me to look past this being about sex and sin and the things I've been told to see it through. And I have to tell you, Jean, I even have colleagues, you know, who may have grown up in a Christian church and maybe they don't identify with it anymore, but they cannot let go of that disobedience piece and the negative elements that are certainly in there on a certain level, right? You know, because they're being punished for, you know, for doing this thing. But I don't read it as literal. I read it as a myth. And this is a thing they're trying to work out, you know, work out these issues, you know, with it. So I don't know if I addressed yeah. your question about sex, but I think you did. You did. That was interesting. I always, yeah, I just really, <laughs> I really like to listen to you. Um, and when I was listening to you just now, I was thinking, it makes me think that <laughs> innately, I think many of us just find sex weird. Like, right. There, you know, parts of it are very strange, right? Right. It can, like, just having a body is strange. <laughs> like, the, the, the things that our bodies do are strange. And sometimes yes. I think we really project that 
into the Bible and into other works of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sometimes I wonder. I mean, I'm no psychologist, but I wonder if that's where some of those deeply negative associations with the story come up yeah. when I try to um, lay down those lenses of sin, original sin, and disobedience, just try to set aside some of those interpretive themes. Like one thing that I notice is that when the woman takes the fruit, the story moves from being a very simple, human beings have a very simple relationship to their environment and to God, super simple, to very complex then after that. And I've even had students say, wow, we just wouldn't really have a Bible if the woman didn't take that initial step toward autonomy and self-awareness and awakening Yes, because there'd be nothing to talk about. Exactly. (laughs) There wouldn't be this collection of stories that together tell this story of evolving relationships between humans and their God. And seen from that vantage point, it's a very productive transgression or decision that the woman makes. Right. Yeah. And it's really funny because in if we're going to talk about the story and, you know, what being that creates these humans doesn't know that that's the very thing they're going to beeline it for, you know, when you tell them not to touch a thing. Early on, I had a student say, you know, kind of engage the story and say, I'm grateful for Eve. I wouldn't be sitting here typing on this laptop, you know, (laughs) kind of to your point, Jean, right? He was kind of summing it all up. But curiosity, you know, the ideas, what is that? What else can I do? All of those. And, you know, I think the knowledge of good and evil, I personally think of it more through the lens of conscience and, you know, having a sense of awareness of ourselves and our interactions with others. That's that's where I tend mm-hmm. to go with it. But I listen to, when others yeah. go elsewhere with that knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going <laughs> to say that you can't make it what you're doing with it. Sure. But I think, yeah. I think there's a, back to your point, too, about the complexity. The human relationships do become more complex and the the human divine, however that's being modeled or referenced. But this idea of their eyes being opened, right? Whatever mm-hmm. that is. And I think that's kind of a universal reference almost, you know, around the world to this concept of enlightenment, however we understand that. And I think, yeah. I do think it's lovely to bring a physicality into that. It's not just a mental or intellectual thing here. This is an embodied reality. And I, you know, from for me, this this splitting between, this false splitting between a body and a soul or however, mm-hmm. I, I think that has led to a lot of unfortunate ideas or beliefs and practices over the years. And so I do like this awareness, this knowledge, there's a physicality to it, even in the story itself. And Vivi does that for us as well in her poem, right? The the knowledge, the creation, that things are beautiful, what God has spoken. Who am I to challenge or even argue with that? Look at what happens, and I know my power. I just think, what a lovely retelling of this story, right? I, I agree. It seems to me like 
The poem seeks to undo that connection between sex and sin and to restore a positive association between sexuality and spirituality and sexuality and innocence. Um, And I remember talking about the eye-opening action as a metaphor for being enlightened, and I really love that. Or the idea also, again, like you're saying, doesn't necessarily have to be intellectual, a mental enlightening, achieving some kind of life-altering understanding that could also be kinetic, it could be body-knowing. And culturally, the Genesis imagery often gets used to evoke specifically an erotic knowing, knowing that you're a desiring human being, knowing what you like, what you want. And Francis uses the imagery that way in this poem, I think. The apple sets up this moment of reaching out to touch the desired person. And the Genesis narrative itself is, I would argue, erotically charged. Eros meaning life, right? Just life force. After all, the story says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. It doesn't say their eyes were opened and they knew that God was tricky then. (laughs) (laughs) It's a True. it's a earthy, yeah. like profoundly human sort of awareness that hits them. Whoa, I'm naked, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, vulnerability. I mean, that's the other thing that comes to me. It's this profound sense of vulnerability where maybe there wasn't that sense of vulnerability before. Mm-hmm. And given some of the language and the action that follow that moment, the language about the woman's, I'm thinking about the language in what typically gets called the curse. The woman's, the desire shall be for her man and her man will rule over her. Mm-hmm that there's language of desire in that pronouncement by God. There's also the fact that they have sex for the first time in the story not that long after that. And it all supports a reading of the eye opening as an awakening of desire, Mm -hmm. among other Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And Francis's poem definitely evokes those interpretive possibilities, and so does Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Hurston always uses Genesis imagery to depict sexual awakening. I want to ask you something before we go on. I just want to ask you how it feels to encounter Francis's really innovative readings of the Genesis imagery, given your your background in a previous life of being very conservative yourself. Yeah, I think... I think what it does for me is what has happened every single time I have engaged a poem with you, Jean. <laughs> and that is that it it it's kind of like it brings me to a stop a little bit. I'm like, wait, that's not what oh, well I guess you can do that, right? You can reread it this way or engage the same ideas and in this case I think in a much more empowering way. I do you know, I I find it I find I want to say, but this is what I've been told, or this is this is what people are typically taught. But and then I I find like I'm I feel like I have this softening around the edges that happens every time, and I and I just and I welcome it. I welcome this very different way of engaging these ancient and sacred for so many people stories, and I find that they have more meaning for me afterwards when I get to do this every single time. (laughs) Mm. More Mm -hmm. meaning, not less, you know. They do for me too. Um, I, I hold these stories sacred and the more interpretations I adventure into, the more meaning they hold. 
uh, the woman in the garden story. I mean, you were talking about this being an empowering way to read this story. The woman in the garden story is so powerful. She is the one who shows curiosity. She is the one who initiates the action that leads to awakening. And the fact that so many religious interpreters, not all religious interpreters, as we've said, we don't want to overgeneralize, but the fact that so many religious interpreters have evaluated the woman's power and initiative to be bad, that doesn't erase the story's own interest in exploring the ways in which women exercise power that shapes the evolution of civilizations. And I just find that writers who use biblical imagery to evoke women's power and sexuality actually help us appreciate nuances of biblical stories that millennia of religious interpretation can make us forget. Yeah. And I I have to say, I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation and talking positively about women's power and sexuality, I'm thinking about some banter going on on Twitter right now that I... I just stay away from. But there's a lot of there are a lot of conservatives out there who just want to put some restrictions on women's bodies. And there are all kinds of elements of women's bodies and all kinds of defining of what's what's okay or what makes a woman valuable or attractive and all these things. And and that's okay. I'll let them have those conversations. But I like, you know, they can have their they I'll just step back and let them do their thing. But it it's it strikes me how much of that language comes out of, you know, patriarchal or male dominant thinking and the need to control, the need to some form of versus what is much more healthy and and interesting, which is letting people be who you know interacting with people as they are and letting them be that and the affirmation of who we are instead and really the affirmation of all the f- elements of bodiliness instead of judging it or demonizing some part of it that I think comes out of some of those more restrictive, shall I say, ways of thinking about relationships and people. So I, yeah, I really enjoyed this poem. Yeah. Thank you for sharing it with me. Yeah. Thanks for talking about it with me, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure as usual. (laughs) And I'll meet you back here again very soon. Sounds good. Okay. This is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You contact Gene or Jennifer at genepatrol.com or jennifergracebird.com. Catch you next time! <laughs>